I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. You can't get directions to the range from people who don't know where the range is. It's high noon for Friday, October 15th, 2021. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator or join the discussion thread at t.me slash I'm reasonable. You can also find me on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. Today is the 268th day of Barack Obama's third term, as served by the half-dead, demented, degenerate, ventriloquist dummy, fake proxy president Joe Biden, who was overwhelmingly compromised by the Chinese Communist Party, the patriarch of one of the most corrupt families in American history, and the father of one of the most despicable sons to ever walk the earth. That's Hunter Biden. So congratulations, commies. You have become aware enough to understand that you have driven yourselves into a cul-de-sac at best, but perhaps a dead end. And rather than trying to turn around and figure out how to get the hell out of there and where else you need to be going, you decide that the best move possible is to just wait a little while, assuming that more road will be built out in front of you because the adults in the room told you where to go and the adults in the room steered you to this very spot you find yourself inhabiting and you understand that the adults in the room would have never led you astray, so there must be a larger plan at work. There's no reason to doubt it. There's no reason to doubt the adults in the room. And you, you're not an expert. You're not going to be able to figure out what to do next. So the truth is you have no choice. So not only is the most prudent step forward to simply wait, it's the only thing you can do. You're stuck for now until the adults in the room get that road built in front of you that they told you was going to be there. And you have to assume, by the way, being not an expert yourself, you have to assume that they really are coming to build that road. They would never, ever have steered you into a dead end because you are very smart, very important, and very influential. You are exactly the sort of person they need on their team. You are an ally to them, which means they must view you as an ally to them. And they want to be an ally to you. Your allyship means they care a lot about your well-being. And that's how you know they would never, ever steer you wrong. The fact that you are at this point, that you have driven yourself to a dead end, 
Well, that just means that the situation has probably involved. And regardless, you cannot blame the adults in the room. And here's the thing, Kami. If you are beginning to get that feeling that you have been waiting at the dead end for maybe a little while too long, and you've started to question whether or not the adults in the room really do intend to build there, then you're having an extremely productive thought. And I hope that you engage that thought with the fullness of your being. And once you understand that perhaps, just perhaps, the adults in the room were not thinking about your best interests and your own most desirable outcomes when they decided which way you should go. It's possible that they are not as on your side as you are on theirs. If you've gotten to that point, Kami, what you need to do is just open the door and walk through it, okay? Because you are standing right in front of the door that you need to walk through. All you need to do is walk through it. That's the hard part. Because you have to say once and for all, wow, these people steered me wrong. And they have steered me wrong over and over and over and over and over again. And I have never actually tried to hold them accountable for how many times they have steered me wrong. I've always just listened to them and believed that it was someone else's fault. They were right the whole time. Just things changed. There was opposition. There were obstacles. And yeah, okay, fine. Things did not work out the way we were saying, but it's not because we had a bad plan. We were right the whole time. Circumstances changed. It was all beyond our control. But what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You're going to listen to those other people? We're the adults in the room. You have to listen to us. If you don't listen to us, you're just going to be out there trying to navigate the world yourself, you children. What chance do you have at that point? And if you're the sort of commie that's like, wait a second, I'm not a child. I'm an adult. I have human agency. I have a mind that has its own thoughts. It tells me what direction I should go in. Now, I don't listen to it most of the time because, you know, I'd rather trust the adults. It's just easier that way. And <laughs> they're the adults. I mean, they know what's happening, right? No, Kami, they don't know what's happening. And they are not the adults in the room. They are just people who went to college. They are children of parents or perhaps grandparents who accomplished something. And they look like they've accomplished something. They talk like they've accomplished something. They have houses and cars and clothes. They go on vacations. They enjoy all the benefits of having accomplished something. The problem is they haven't accomplished anything. Okay? They have made their way through a system that was designed to make their way easy for them. Not for you. For them. So now they are at the point where they're like, just look at my results. I am prominent. I am wealthy. I'm well-dressed. I'm well-spoken. I have this 
great understanding of how the world works. And I will apply my ideas to the world and the world will be so much better for having allowed me to perform this experiment. And yes, inevitably the experiment will fail, but it's not because it wasn't a good experiment. It's just because the world didn't react to my experiment in the right way. And if you've heard that sort of explanation from that sort of person enough times, then perhaps it is time to just take that final step and walk through the door and come on out the other side. You will see the directions to the range all on your own. You will not need the adults in the room to tell you how to get here. You'll just go forward and eventually end up on the range. All you have to do is leave all of the stupid and evil communist ideas behind and migrate back to America. And during your migration, one would hope that you would attempt to make amends with all the people that you have uh, shamed and bullied and censored and tried to have fired from their jobs, tried to have ejected from polite society. You might want to apologize to those people, but once you do, once you migrate back to America, you will find that all of us are willing to receive you with open arms because we want all Americans to be part of this American experiment in liberty and self-governance where we don't necessarily get to always defer to the adults in the room and we have to actually speak our own minds and choose our own paths and correct our own failures. And with that, I would love to extend a warm Friday high noon welcome to all of the redeemable communists out there. Hello, commies! Welcome to the show. I don't know how you found the show. Hopefully, you have a very smart friend who said, hey, commie, why don't you check this show out? Because I feel like you don't want to keep being a communist. I know, I know that you're not supporting evil because you're evil. You're supporting evil because you're confused. The good news is that there are ways for you to be unconfused. And I would like to help you in that process. That's why I'm here and that's why you're here. So what I need you to do is just stick around for the next 50 or so minutes and then show up next week, you know, all five days and a little bit after that. And you are going to be well on your way to becoming an American again. And trust me, you will be so much happier that you tried. So I want to talk today about how in the world seemingly smart people are still so child-brained and rock-dumb about such obvious stuff. Okay, and this is going to be a little bit of a continuation from yesterday. I want to talk about uh, the Sanjay Gupta stuff a little bit. But more importantly than that, I want to talk more about Joe Rogan because my friend recommended that I listen to the episode of Joe Rogan where he had a guy named Michael Schellenberger on. And I've heard Michael Schellenberger talk before uh, a few years ago. I think that he was like hinting around trying to run for California governor or something. And he wanted 
to run on a platform of the good of nuclear energy. And that's something that I can largely get on board with. I am not an energy expert. That is not my main field of attention or study. But it seems to me like the arguments against nuclear energy are mostly just overt freakouts by people who want to put all our eggs into the basket of renewables like wind and solar, even though those energy sources are uh, unreliable and inconsistent and really not up to the job of powering this country or powering its economy. And we have seen that enough times now to know that the plan to shift to wind and solar only is preposterously silly. But now he is out there um, trying to sell a book that he has recently written. Uh, I think it's called San Francisco. And he's talking about the drug and homelessness problem in San Francisco. And the entire conversation that they have for three hours basically goes in the same pattern over and over and over again. They will talk at length about a problem and describe it in all of these different ways. It's like they're really covering a bunch of aspects of the actual problem. But then when they start talking about solutions, they hit a wall because all the solutions have to be conceived of through this lens of idiot leftism. It's like they have nearly a full and complete understanding that the problem again and again, is the leftist politics, but the solution has to be more leftist politics, but just a more like technologically advanced way to think about it. You just have to think about it on a little bit of a higher level. That's the problem. These very complicated problems like why there would be more homelessness when you incentivize homelessness well, you've got to discuss it from 20 or 30 different angles, and then you have to figure out a way that no one has approached the problem before, but it's brand new. Will it work? Probably not. But the thing is, no one's ever tried it before, and we can all agree that the solutions prior to this one have all failed. So the thing is, we don't need to abandon the leftism. We don't need to abandon the reliance on studies from advocacy groups and from advocacy research in the universities. We don't need to abandon that. We don't need to abandon the idea that all of our solutions will only ever be looked at as the most compassionate, the nicest, the kindest, the least offensive. We don't have to abandon that either. We can find a solution that no one can argue with. It'll be the nicest, the most progressive, the kindest, the most compassionate. That's the sort of solution we want. Does it work? No. But there's no way anyone is going to be able to call us a bad person for trying it. And no one can call us a bad person for bringing up the idea that we should try it. And that's the first requirement of any solution. Identify a problem, 
understand how awful this problem is to all the people experiencing the problem, understand for ourselves that we are not experiencing the problem and never will and never could. But as the adults in the room, we're going to have to figure out a solution on how to fix other people's lives. And yes, we're going to continue to incentivize their homelessness, but we're going to propose solutions that make it seem like we have the problem under control and are fixing it. And when the problem gets worse, well, I guess we're just going to have to do a little bit more of the thing we suggested before. Because, you know, all of the studies and the best research, it has all led us to this conclusion. This is the right answer. And You know, if it doesn't work, then we probably just didn't get it all the way there. We're just going to have to put a little bit more money behind it. We're going to have to make sure that no one ever speaks out against the answer because that's part of what causes the answer to fail. The solution that we have put into place actually, you know, the solution feels kind of insecure. And if you... If you talk bad about the solution, it's going to feel, I don't know. The solution doesn't want to put in full effort if you're not going to appreciate it. So the thing is, no one is allowed to talk bad about the solution because that's what causes it to fail. So we just need to make sure that everybody really focuses on complimenting the solution and on complimenting us and giving us all the credit for the solution, even though the solution will ultimately fail. And that is like, honestly, how they approach this stuff. I have said before that I I love Joe Rogan. You know, I have listened to him for many years. I think he is probably a really good guy. I don't know that to be true for sure, but I think he is, you know, and I think he's coming from the right place. You know, I think he wants to help and he wants to say good things and make his show like part of the solution. He wants to be a positive force for good, for change in the world. I'm not generally questioning his motives and I'm not generally questioning his intelligence either, as I think he's a really open-minded, smart guy. But Whether it is a factor of him selling out to Spotify or whether it is just a matter of this being who he is and he likes to think that there is a middle road through everything, he is continuously wrong in the same way. And it's getting to be really obvious and truthfully pretty pathetic. Uh, So I want to play you a little clip a couple minutes long of just, this is in the first half hour of the show, and then I'll talk about some more of it, but this is the approach to basically everything when you get these sorts of people together. I mean, he has the same conversation with virtually everyone that comes on the podcast. This same principle, always at work. Homelessness, poverty, um, illegal immigration. There's this dogmatic position where if you want to be in with the progressives you have to subscribe to the ideology hook line and sinker and if you don't 
if there's any deviation, that deviation is your white privilege or white supremacy or there's some way that people find to demonize any opposing viewpoints. How do we get people who are left, who are progressive, who recognize that this is a problem, and but but we need to let them know that there's an actual pragmatic approach to this that may seem cruel on the surface, but is ultimately better for the people involved, better for everyone, better for the, the actual homeless people themselves, better for the community at large. Like, how do we shift the perception? Yeah, I mean, for sure, I think the first part of that, at least on this issue, is was what I was saying. So it's calcite, and I just refer to what the Dutch do. So right, I go, but, I mean, but how do we get the general public yeah. involved? Like, to, to, to put together an organization like this, I, it sounds brilliant, right? Like, to have a large place where there's a shelter, where there's, like, qualified people to take care of it. But how do we get it into the heads of people that, I mean, it seems like it starts... It starts with uh, education, right? Like the, these attitudes get propagated in universities and in, even in high schools, and it's something that people they just buy into, and it becomes a thing that you sort of repeat, like a mantra. Like you know, this is how it is. This is what's the problem. Here's what here's what's the issue. Tax the rich. Like what are you gonna do with the taxes? Once you tax the rich, then what? You can't just fucking say tax the rich because then you just have bigger business, and that business is now government. What do we do? Like, how do you get people to change the way they're looking at this and saying, okay, clearly we're all compassionate people that want these homeless folks to have a better life. We don't want people's lives to suck. So how do we get it into the minds of these progressive people that are very passionate about this, that the current strategy is not working? It's amazing, isn't it? He's like knocking on the door. He's realizing that these progressive policies, and by the way, they talk about this through the rest of the episode. They even mention at different points that these policies have been failing for 50 years. So they're aware of the exact same things that I talk about on this podcast all the time. There is an awareness there. They just can't walk through the door and realize it's them. They are the problem. Okay, we don't need to uh, spoon feed like mashed up peas and carrots to liberals to make them finally understand that actual solutions are better than nice talk and terrible solutions. He's basically asking how we can tell these people the truth about how their policies have failed over and over and over and over again how their ideology is completely intellectually and morally bankrupt. How do we communicate this to them in a way that they will understand? Well, there obviously is not that way, okay? And the solution is not more technocratic, top-down leftism as Michael Schellenberger talks about. The solution is not to stop incentivizing homelessness and rampant drug use on the streets. No, the solution is to build up another organization where very expert people will give very productive psychological therapy and care to the people on the streets. That's what we need. We need another bureaucracy called CalPsych because we're going to help these people fix their minds. You know, like the Dutch do. Over and over again. Oh, this is what the Dutch do. This is what the Dutch do. 
And it's so strange that people like Joe Rogan aren't concerned ever about how they might communicate this stuff to normal people or to conservatives because those people are already practical. He's uncertain about how to communicate practicality to people in a liberal cult. He's referring to it as dogma and then wondering how we can speak to them practically while apparently still embracing the dogma. He is aware that they have the cultural power to reject every answer that doesn't fit within their ideology and that they have the practical power to prevent any answer that doesn't fit within their ideology to ever be enacted in the real world. That is a recognition of the power of leftism and his solution is, well, how do we convince these dogmatic leftists that they're wrong without ever telling them they're wrong, even though all of their solutions end in failure? Well, it seems like there's room for a pragmatic progressivism as opposed to this dogmatic approach where you're not allowed to question the ideology, even if it's not effective. And it's clearly not effective when it comes to homeless people or drug addiction or any of these like real legitimate problems that we're facing. And uh, the idea that the problem is wealthy people is preposterous. That's not what the problem is. The, the, there's, there's a multitude of problems and none of them seem to be being addressed like effectively. It seems like there's room for a pragmatic progressivism. You just do away with the dogma, and then we get to the pragmatic stuff, and that would be effective. That would give us the results, and it would make everybody feel nice. And that, on its face, seems like an intelligent thought, except for the fact that there's no such thing as pragmatic progressivism, okay? The progressivism is the part that matters. They don't care about the pragmatic part. They don't care about fixing problems. It is an ideology. And that ideology has no limits. The limit to that ideology is just the most possible communism. And every time something fails, the solution is more communism. That's the kind of ideology it is. If the ideology doesn't have limits, it will always continue until its logical end. And the logical end of communism is subjugation, violence, and deprivation. And this is what it has always been everywhere it has ever been tried. You cannot have pragmatic progressivism because none of the solutions work in the real world if your goal is making people's lives better. That's the whole point. And you know, this Schellenberger guy, apparently he used to work at the Open Society Foundation or in some other capacity for George Soros. And they talk about it briefly. Schellenberger seems to be clueless about what the Open Society Foundation is actually attempting to do. He is obviously a clueless lefty and is unaware that this isn't just degrees in communism, all right? He thinks 
that Soros just has this ultimate belief that the things he's doing will eventually make the lives of normal people better. It could not be clearer that that is not George Soros's goal as he goes and manipulates currencies around the world, brings entire societies to their knees, disrupts the political environment in places like right now, Myanmar, Peru, the United States of America. No, George Soros is just a rich leftist who is putting money into his passion projects and trying to improve the world. He is just a benevolent philanthropist and that's it. And at one point, Rogan is like, well, I, you know, there's got to be a third way. We just have like this radical left on one side and then just like Nazis on the other side. And I think that he's I think that he's maybe kind of making the joke that this is how leftists talk about it and not representing his own point of view. At least I'm hoping that that's where he's coming from. If he actually still thinks that about uh, Trump and Trump supporters, MAGA, whatever you want to call it, he is more far gone than I could possibly imagine. But he and Schellenberger end up in a conversation about the intellectual dark web, the IDW. This is a uh, a term that Eric Weinstein coined. I guess it would have been, I don't know, 2017, 2018. It couldn't have been 2019. So yeah, I'm going to say 2017, 2018. So it's been around for a few years and it was a group of guys mostly who were on kind of the podcast circuit. They were all appearing on one another's shows for a few months or maybe a year, and they were very controversial. It was Joe Rogan, Sam Harris, Ben Shapiro, uh, Jordan Peterson, Eric and Brett Weinstein, and then Dave Rubin was part of it because he was hosting all of these people on his show. So his show kind of became this hub for the intellectual dark web. Now, Dave Rubin is just a world-class dumb guy, like just a very, very, very dumb guy who thinks he's very funny. He actually talks about how he is a stand-up comic and he went out on the road with Jordan Peterson to do stand-up comedy as an opener for Jordan Peterson. Now, I was at one of their shows and it is true that Dave Rubin came out for five or 10 minutes before Joe Jordan Peterson came out. But in that time, he was not really doing stand-up comedy. He was talking about bits of Jordan Peterson's act or routine or spiel or whatever you'd like to call it. And he would occasionally get claps and laughs. It was about as funny as Nanette is the Hannah Gadsby special on Netflix from years ago where a militant feminist just talked at length about how much she hates men. And that was supposed to be spectacular comedy. Dave Rubin is about that funny. Um, but the rest of these guys in the intellectual dark web, you can go down the roster, each and every one of them, each and every one of them has been absolutely completely wrong about COVID and absolutely completely wrong about election fraud. The two most important issues they will ever face in their entire lives, and all of these very, very smart, very, very serious people have no fucking clue what they're talking about. Now, Brett Weinstein is 
far more advanced than the rest of them when it comes to COVID. And Joe Rogan at least agrees with that. But apparently Sam Harris will no longer talk to Brett Weinstein because Brett Weinstein's views about the vaccine, about things like antibody dependent enhancement and about things like ivermectin are so dangerous that they just can no longer be friends and can no longer talk. And Rogan's like, well, yeah, you know, I wish I could just get them in the same room and try to figure out what the problem here is. Hey, dummy, the problem is that all of you have agreed to lie about a certain set of issues. Jordan Peterson spent years detailing how societies are taken over by Marxism. And he would often refer to uh, Solzhenitsyn, the Gulag Archipelago. He has a complete and total awareness of the state of the world that brings on situations like that, but has completely failed to realize that we are in that situation right now because to do so would mean that he would have to blame himself and people like him because Jordan Peterson is fully in the party of false decorum and fully invested in the fruits of his membership. And so, of course, is Sam Harris. And so are the rest of the members of the intellectual dark web. Ben Shapiro, who is the conservative of the group, He's just as clueless as all the leftists. How's that possible? Well, it's because Ben Shapiro cares about the party of false decorum. Ben Shapiro cares about being able to please the mainstream while kind of making them a little angry so that he becomes controversial enough to be this huge figure. And he's been very successful at that. Rogan even talks about how Brett Weinstein wants to talk to Sam Harris and wants to speak to Sam Harris in a public forum on either one of their podcasts or on Rogan's or whatever. And Sam Harris refuses to do it. Well, why does Sam Harris refuse to do that? Why? That's the question, right? He's in the intellectual dark web. He's supposed to embrace edgy thought and open conversation and difficult arguments and open-mindedness. Isn't that what the whole project was about? Turns out, Nope. The whole project was just about them saying things that would slightly make the left mad and none of them were on the right. So they were just right in that centrist area. They're all just very edgy centrists. And for guys who have taken so much heat and so much shit from the woke cancel culture in the mainstream, it's strange that they don't now realize that what they've done is simply surrender to that woke cancel culture. At one point, Rogan even talks about how the New York Times, despite making life hell for Barry Weiss, for instance, is still just the best. The New York Times is the best. It does the best reporting. It just is the best paper. What would we do without them? And to support this, he says, yeah, you know, they still, they, they write some editorials. I read some editorials every now and then. And I'm like, yeah, well, yeah, they really, they really nailed that. That is what the Joe Rogan standard for good journalism is now. Editorials 
in the New York Times are occasionally good, according to Joe Rogan. Therefore, the New York Times is indispensable. Doesn't matter how many conspiracy theories they push. Doesn't matter if they get the most critical issues in American society completely wrong intentionally. They are still just indispensable. I cannot believe that all of these people have dug themselves further and further and further into this hole. Joe Rogan used to have Eddie Bravo and Alex Jones on. And now I don't know enough about either one of their works to say that I agree a lot. I mean, I guess I do kind of about Alex Jones. Alex Jones bothers me. I don't necessarily trust him. I guess he's right a lot and he's kind of entertaining, but I mean, I wouldn't go to him for my information. That's just me. I know some people love him all good, but where is any conflicting idea now on Rogan in the Spotify age? I don't see it. And it's honestly kind of pathetic. Uh, let's turn though to Dr. CNN senior medical expert, chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. He felt the need to explain why he went on to the no-no show, why Joe Rogan and I sat down and talked for more than three hours. This is on CNN.com. Apparently, it's not okay for him to have done this. So now he needs to explain himself and try to right the wrongs that were committed. Because going on Don Lemon's show, as I, I played on the podcast yesterday, that wasn't sufficient. In today's highly segmented media world, most of the people who watch and listen to me every day on CNN have already received and accepted the message about the utility of vaccines, the importance of masks, and how we can all work together to put an end to this pandemic. So I realized that if I was serious about trying to communicate public health, I needed to go to a less comfortable place. I needed to go into the lion's den and accept an invitation to sit down with Joe Rogan for more than three hours. Okay. Let's break that down already because Sanjay Gupta is lying. Sanjay Gupta is trying to sell a book and he wanted to go on Joe Rogan's platform because Joe Rogan has a massive audience. He is not trying to communicate public health. And when he says that he is, what he's saying is that he wants to convince Joe Rogan's listeners that vaccines are very safe and effective and that masks work and that if we do these things, Altogether, we can put an end to the pandemic. And they have been saying all of these things for 18 months. Has the pandemic ended? Yes, only in reality. But in the minds of people like Sanjay Gupta and all of the uh, child-brained communists who watch CNN, no, the pandemic is still ongoing. And for all of the child-brains in Joe Rogan's audience, the pandemic is still going as well. I don't think I have ever had a conversation that long with anyone, Gupta says. How is that, Sanjay Gupta? You've never had a three-hour conversation with anyone? Anyone. Sanjay Gupta has never had a three-hour conversation with anyone. How is that possible? Seriously, think about that. 
We sat in a windowless podcast booth with two sets of headphones and microphones and a few feet between us. Not a single interruption. No cell phones. No distractions. No bathroom breaks. I mean, who has the time? At a time when there is a desire for shorter, crisper content, responding to abbreviated human attention spans, one of the most popular podcasts in the country features conversations that last exceptionally long and go particularly deep. In fact... Joe Rogan's podcast is the most popular podcast, which would indicate that people actually want that. They don't want the shorter, crisper content. They don't actually want to be told what the takeaway is and have that just beaten into their head the way Sanjay Gupta and CNN do. That is not what the market calls for. That is actually what they are using to train a certain portion of the population so that those people will only repeat the slogans they have been given. And even Rogan kind of mentioned that in the clip before. They're just repeating a mantra. These people are aware of all of it. They just don't know the final step is to walk through the door and leave it behind. Back to doctor expert Sanjay Gupta. Many friends cautioned me against accepting Joe's invitation. He keeps remarking that it was Joe's invitation. There is little room for reasonable conversations anymore, one person told me. He is a brawler and doesn't play fair. What could that possibly mean? I think Joe Rogan is stunted in his thinking and making a grievous mistake with the way he approaches his show since selling out to Spotify. But Joe Rogan is still providing a three-hour open conversation. There is nothing about that that suggests he does not play fair. He is playing as fairly as possible. This is a warning, Sanjay Gupta said. Another warned. Joe Rogan is a brawler and doesn't play fair. That means Joe Rogan might say you're wrong and you got to be really careful about going into a place where someone might point out that you're wrong. In fact, when I told Joe early in the podcast that I didn't agree with his apparent views on vaccines against COVID, ivermectin, and many things in between, part of me thought the MMA former Taekwondo champion might hurtle himself across the table and throttle my neck. But instead, he smiled and off we went. Yes, you mean like he always does? Sanjay Gupta is setting up a straw man out of someone that millions and millions of people listen to. And anyone who does knows that Joe Rogan is specifically not like that and is usually stoned and one of the most peaceful conversationalists you might ever encounter. It is absolutely crazy to present Joe Rogan this way. And he's doing it intentionally, of course. So he does this in, in segments here in this article. Here is a headline. Joe Rogan agreed to get vaccinated. Okay, I'm embellishing here. But Joe Rogan is the one guy in the country I wanted to exchange views with in real dialogue, one that could potentially be among the most important conversations of this entire pandemic. After listening to his podcasts for a while now, oh, you've listened to him for a while, so that means that you understand the way you just portrayed him was a complete and total straw man. Got it. I wanted to know, was Joe simply a sower of doubt, a creator of chaos, or was there something more? Was he asking questions that begged to be asked, fueled by necessary suspicion and skepticism? 
into the lion's den. It wasn't what Joe Rogan thinks that most interested me. It was how he thinks. This is what I wanted to really understand. Truth is, I have always been a naturally skeptical person myself. One of my personal heroes, the physicist Edwin Hubble, said a scientist has a, quote, healthy skepticism, suspended judgment, and disciplined imagination, not only about other people's ideas, but also their own, end quote. It's a good way of thinking about the world, full of honesty and humility. I live by that, and I think Joe may to some extent as well. He will be the first to point out that he is not a doctor or a scientist who has studied these topics. Instead, he seems to see himself less a rapscallion and more of a sort of guardian of the galaxy, pointing out the missteps made by large institutions such as the government and mainstream medicine, and then wondering aloud if they can still be trusted to make recommendations or even mandates for the rest of us. To many, he represents a queen bee in a hive mind, advancing free will and personal liberty above all else. The free will of your fist ends where my nose begins. This is another headline for a segment. When I said this to Joe, the MMA fighter, he paused, sat back, and listened for a while. I asked him, is it not possible to strongly advocate for personal freedoms but also recognize the unique threat a highly contagious disease represents? He seemed to agree, but then quickly countered with a common misconception about the overall utility of vaccines. If vaccinated people transmit just as much as the unvaccinated, why are they really necessary? It was like Joe and I were now in the octagon, circling one another. He stared at me intently now, eyebrows raised. I admitted that the vaccinated could still carry the virus at similar loads as the unvaccinated, but swiftly added, before he could claim victory, that there was more to the story. I shared data with Joe, showing the vaccinated were eight times less likely to become infected in the first place, and that their viral loads came down more rapidly if they did get infected, making them contagious for a shorter period and less likely to spread the virus. Now, that is very interesting. And thank you for pointing that out, Dr. Expert Sanjay Gupta. So, Sanjay, let me get this straight. What you have just written in the English language is... Their viral loads came down more rapidly if they did get infected, making them contagious for a shorter period and less likely to spread the virus. What Sanjay Gupta has just expressed is that the disease is spread through people with high viral loads, which means the symptomatic. Sanjay Gupta just recognized in his own words, in reality, that asymptomatic spread is not a thing. That's what he just said, and he doesn't even realize it. He's so concerned with trying to support the efficacy and necessity of the vaccine that he just knocked out one of the pillars of the entire COVID argument throughout this entire period. He just knocked that right out and didn't even Flinch. He wrote it right into his article, his own read through of his work, and then his editor's read through of the work, assuming that he has an editor. They didn't catch this. It's rather amazing. And this is the way they talk. There's only the argument in the moment, and it is separate from all their other arguments. And I'm sure that if he realized this, he would also create a very complicated and convoluted explanation as to why what I just said about what he said is wrong. 
And then he would appeal to his own expertise and his own authority on why we must listen to his complicated, convoluted, and obviously incorrect explanation rather than the truth that I just told you. Back to the expert. Vaccines are not perfect, but he had to agree they are certainly a worthy tool to help control the spread of the virus. And they are particularly effective at keeping people from getting severely ill or dying. They also may help prevent the development of long COVID, a chronic state of illness that some people develop after natural infection, even if their bout with the acute phase of infection was mild. Okay, so you don't want to get long COVID. Therefore, you get a vaccine whose long-term side effects are completely unknown. Oh, and also it's not a vaccine. Rogan also did not have to agree that they are certainly a worthy tool to help control the spread of the virus because there's no proof anywhere, not any proof whatsoever that that statement is true. And he says that Rogan certainly has to agree that the vaccines are particularly effective at keeping people from getting severely ill or dying. That also is not true. And there's more than ample proof throughout the world that that's not true. What he said next surprised me. So it turns out that Joe Rogan nearly got vaccinated. That was a headline. It was a few months ago when he was in Las Vegas. He had an appointment scheduled but had logistical hurdles and couldn't make it. He offered up this story as proof he is not necessarily anti-vaccine, even if he does consistently raise issues questioning their legitimacy. You got that? So if you raise issues questioning the legitimacy of the experimental gene therapy that makes you anti-vaccine unless you have a story like this and then you're in a uh, then you're in just a void space where no one can really tell where your allegiances lie it's this sort of back and forth that makes it hard to pin Joe Rogan down both in martial arts and a podcast interview <laughs> For example, even as he sometimes railed against masks, the Joe Rogan Experience masks emblazoned with his logo are available for sale on his website. I even bought one ahead of time and gave it to him as a gift. He looked surprised. Incidentally, they are made in China. Isn't that amazing? Sanjay Gupta caught him in a hypocrisy. Totally nailed him, man. Wow. These fucking people, man. Despite a downplaying of COVID risks often heard on Joe's podcast, his private studio prioritizes safety. A nurse was present to perform a rapid COVID test before we began. We were even checked for the presence of antibodies with a finger prick blood test. Yes, give them your DNA to make sure that you don't have a disease you don't have and you can't give it to people who have already had it. That's the science. Congratulations, Sanjay. What you just heard is a doctor slash scientist tell you that he is proud and happy to have gone through minor medical procedures for no reason, for no reason whatsoever. Was he tested for STDs? Was he tested for influenza? Was he tested for tuberculosis? Why not? He could have any of those things and not know it. He could pass them and not know it, couldn't he? I mean- don't those diseases spread asymptomatically as well? Man, for a scientist, this stuff's not making a whole lot of sense. Both of us carried antibodies. His from natural immunity, mine from the vaccine. I was vaccinated in December of last year and Rogan contracted COVID at the end of August. 
even though this antibody test could only detect the presence of antibodies and not their strength, Joe took great pride in his test, insisting the thickness of his lines must mean stronger immunity. I am fairly certain he was joking. And I didn't have the heart to tell him that my antibody line was significantly thicker than his anyway. I mean, (laughs) I don't even need to say it, right? I mean, what? And that brings us to uh, medical expert, chief medical correspondent, doctor, expert Sanjay Gupta's final segment, the nuance of immunity. You got that? It's very nuanced. You can't just understand it. It bears repeating that no one should choose infection over vaccination. Why? Why? First of all, you can't say it bears repeating if it's not something you've already said. Are we just supposed to assume that he says this on a normal basis? It bears repeating that no one should choose infection over vaccination. Really? If immunity from infection is stronger than immunity from vaccination and the vaccination has a series of short and long-term medical consequences that are not only already bad, but as yet still unknown concerning how bad they actually are and can be. And the infection for most healthy people under, say, 65 years old has about a 1 in 10,000 or 1 in 100,000 chance of killing you, it actually does seem to make sense that infection is better than vaccination. And people should choose that if they want the best outcome. That is a concern many public health officials have had since the earliest days of the pandemic. If nothing else comes out of my conversation with Joe Rogan, I hope at least this point does. Far too many people have become severely ill and died even after the effective vaccines became available. Just in the last three months, there have been more than 90,000 preventable COVID-19 deaths in the U.S. among unvaccinated adults, according to analysis by the Kaiser Family Foundation. Now, who qualifies as an unvaccinated adult? Anyone who is not more than two weeks past their last full dose of the experimental gene therapy, okay? So in the Johnson & Johnson one, that's more than two weeks past when they got the Johnson & Johnson shot. And for the Pfizer and Moderna people, that's more than two weeks after they got their second dose. So anything before that counts as unvaccinated, okay? So in that death figure, in that 90,000, all of those people are included. Also, all of the people who died from something else, but also had a positive COVID test within usually four weeks to 60 days of getting a positive test. That's when they died. Those people are also included in that number, whether or not they died of COVID and everyone in that number who actually received a positive COVID test is subject to the faultiness of the test, which we know is extraordinary. So Sanjay's number actually doesn't mean anything. At the same time, an Israeli study garnered a lot of attention after it appeared to show that natural immunity offered significant protection, even stronger than two doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine in people who had never been infected. And I guess he's just going to leave that out there. It just appeared to show that. 
So the question Joe raises, as may, as do many others, why should those who have previously had COVID still get the vaccine? It's a fair question and one that I raised myself with Dr. Fauci back in early September. At the time, he told me there was no firm answer on this, and they were still looking into what the recommendations should be going forward and how durable natural immunity is in the long run. Part of the issue is we still don't have a clear idea of how many people have contracted COVID in the United States. The official number is around 45 million, but due to continued lack of sufficient testing, it remains uncertain. Got that? The number of COVID cases either is or is not around 45 million. But if it is around 45 million, the truth is we know from all the, uh, the asymptomatic cases that go untested, the number is at least four or five times that large, and it could be far higher. And this is according to the CDC, by the way. They have had numbers as high as 20, 24 times the number of reported positive tests. And many of the antibody tests that are currently available have high rates of both false negative and false positive results, oftentimes making them unreliable as proof of immunity. But what Sanjay fails to mention is that that is exactly how they prove the efficacy of the vaccines. An antibody response is the standard that they are citing when they say the vaccines are effective. Another issue with natural immunity is that it can vary substantially based on the age of the individual and just how sick they got in the first place. Milder illness in older people often resulted in fewer antibodies being produced. Some studies show that between 30 and 40% of people who have recovered from COVID did not have detectable neutralizing antibodies at all. But hey, then again, the, the tests, totally faulty. That probably explains why a recent study showed that unvaccinated people who already had COVID were more than twice as likely to get reinfected as those who had also been vaccinated. Except again, the tests don't work. The antibody tests don't work. The standards on who is unvaccinated and who is vaccinated aren't real. So Sanjay Gupta is just saying stuff, but don't worry. He's one of the adults in the room. I told Joe that even in the study from Israel, the authors concluded with the recommendation that people who had recovered from COVID still get a vaccine. And when Joe pushed hard on the risk of myocarditis in kids who receive the vaccine, especially young boys, I countered back equally hard that the risk of myocarditis has been shown to be much higher for infected children under 16 years old compared to their uninfected peers. Now, he points this, he links to a CDC study on this. And in the CDC study that he is referring to, if you simply open it and read it, it says in the conclusions he was referring to, the findings in this study are subject to at least six limitations. First, the risk estimates from this study reflect the risk for myocarditis among persons who received a diagnosis of COVID-19 during an outpatient or inpatient healthcare encounter and do not reflect the risk among all persons who had COVID-19. So that's kind of the sort of problem that would defeat the entire point of Sanjay Gupta bringing up this test in the first place. But let's pretend that it doesn't. Second, misclassification of COVID-19 and myocarditis is possible because conditions were determined by ICD-10-CM codes, which were not confirmed by clinical data, e.g. laboratory tests or cardiac imaging, and could be improperly coded or coded with a related condition e.g. pericarditis. Third, encounters for COVID-19 myocarditis and COVID-19 vaccination occurring outside hospital systems that contribute to PhD-SR are not included with this data set. 
Fourth, underlying medical conditions and alternative etiologies for myocarditis were not ascertained or excluded. Fifth, the obtained measures of association could be biased because of the choice of the comparison group, all patients without COVID-19, and if physicians were more likely to suspect or diagnose myocarditis among patients with COVID-19. Finally, the findings represent a convenience sample of patients from hospitals reporting to PHDSR and might not be generalizable to the U.S. population. So CNN's chief medical correspondent just used this study as proof of what he's saying, even though the study says this study is not proof of what we're saying. Myocarditis is is uncommon among patients with and without COVID-19. However, COVID-19 is a strong and significant risk factor for myocarditis with risk varying by age group. The findings in this report underscore the importance of implementing evidence-based COVID-19 prevention strategies, including vaccination, to reduce the public health impact of COVID-19 and its associated complications. Got it? So Sanjay Gupta is using this study to make the point that the risk of myocarditis is somehow higher in people who get COVID relative to the people who were vaccinated for COVID. Now, assuming that is true, which we should not at all assume, there is no reason to believe that all of us will magically get COVID if we're not vaccinated. Also, there is absolutely nothing about the vaccine that prevents us from getting COVID. Okay, he's acting like these are two distinct groups of people, people who get COVID and people who get the vaccine. And that's it. There are also people who don't get either. And there are also people who get both. So what we have is a study that doesn't prove what he says it proves. The study recognizes that it's not a controlled test of any of this. The study recognizes that it can't even really test for the things it's pretending to test for. And yet this is enough proof for CNN's chief medical correspondent, Sanjay Gupta, to say that the risk of myocarditis is higher if you happen to get COVID, even though we know the risk of myocarditis from the vaccine, which you take by choice is much higher than if you haven't gotten the vaccine. You are not guaranteed to get COVID if you are unvaccinated. And getting vaccinated does not prevent you from getting COVID. So really, you have opened yourself up to a new way to get myocarditis. That is all that is happening in this situation. And Dr. Expert Sanjay Gupta is pretending it is the opposite. It is not the opposite. This, of course, is lunacy. But back to the article, those numbers dwarf the risk of myocarditis in kids who receive the vaccine. And to be sure, most cases of myocarditis can be treated without hospitalization. You got that? So they certainly haven't detected all of the cases of myocarditis in kids. And the truth is that vaccination of children is still a relatively new thing. They do not have a huge sample size. The possibility exists that the problem of myocarditis in kids who got vaccinated could be so much worse than what we know now. And he is nonetheless encouraging the vaccination of children. 
For me, the risk-benefit analysis is clear. Vaccination is safer than an infection. He is looking at one variable, citing a bad study that doesn't prove what he says it proves, ignoring the fact that the vaccination doesn't prevent you from getting COVID at all, and then saying that in his analysis, vaccination is better than infection. This is a medical expert. This is one of the adults in the room. I guess a small part of me thought I might change Joe Rogan's mind about vaccines. After this last exchange, I realized it was probably futile. His mind was made up, and there would always be plenty of misinformation out there neatly packaged to support his convictions. Truth is, though, I'm still glad I did it. My three-hour-long conversation wasn't just with Rogan. If just a few of his listeners were convinced, it will have been well worth it. Sanjay Gupta sounds like he is writing a love letter to rock dumb communists. This is one of the dumbest things I have ever read. And this is his excuse, his excuse to all of the communists about how he didn't actually hurt the cause. Whatever the number of people is that may have been convinced by Sanjay Gupta's appearance that Sanjay Gupta is somehow not a clownish moron, if there were actually people out there convinced to get the vaccine from Sanjay Gupta's appearance on CNN, that number is dwarfed by the number of people who watched that and thought to themselves, wow, CNN is really a joke, huh? But this is what passes for edgy conversation about these issues of massive public importance. Sanjay Gupta, Joe Rogan, and Michael Schellenberger are just all launching utter nonsense at one another. And hey, maybe I'm the idiot for expecting that Joe Rogan will work his way through all of this somehow. There has been no sign in 18 months that that is going to happen. And I don't want to leave the impression that this is about simply making fun of how ignorant these people are, although I'm happy to do that. These issues are actually important. Joe Rogan has one of the biggest platforms in the world. And I'm not one of those people who thinks that people need to use their platform in a certain way that I would like. But maybe it's time we recognize the fact that we are in the midst of these multiple concurrent world-changing crises, and the people that we are following are continually leading us to dead ends. And truthfully, Joe Rogan right now is one of those people, okay? You cannot wake up to reality by listening to Joe Rogan's podcast. It will not get you there. It might get people halfway there, and if that's the truth, then good for him and, and good for that outcome. It's better than nothing. And the friend of mine who sent me this podcast and suggested I listen to it, he enjoys hearing that. He enjoys hearing the sorts of things that will get like real commies to snap out of it a little bit. Like that's progress and he's happy to see that progress. That doesn't do it for me at all. These people have got to be farther ahead than this. Okay. And I'm not saying don't have these people on. Joe Rogan should have whatever show he wants to have in 
whatever boundaries Spotify has laid out for him. And whatever help that provides to the country is wonderful. But Joe Rogan is cognizant of the problem. He is just misdiagnosing it and not realizing that the problem is people like him, Sanjay Gupta, and Michael Schellenberger. Having these conversations inside that little tiny box, all that reinforces is these are all of the thoughts you could have. Every thought that you could have is within this Overton window. That people like Joe Rogan by going to Spotify, people like Alex Berenson by catering to Twitter, etc., etc., have not helped to expand. They have left the Overton window exactly where it is. And that was determined by what the radical leftists and the woke cancel culture decided. So they can deride that motivation. They can deride the left. They can talk about their radicalism, the wokeness, how that always leads to failure, how the policies fail, how we need a pragmatic alternative. But they are still playing entirely and always on the terms set out by those same people. So how are we supposed to advance beyond that? You know, people might understand after watching the Rogan and Sanjay Gupta thing that ivermectin is actually effective and that CNN was lying. Those are two great takeaways. But if the rest of the time they come away with the idea that the vaccines actually are safe and effective and that myocarditis caused by the vaccines isn't a problem or at least isn't a problem relative to how dangerous coronavirus is, then we haven't gotten anywhere. All people are doing is moving away from the central narrative and then being pulled right back into it. It's the same exact thing that is done by Fox News and by MSNBC and by CNN which is why Joe Rogan is paid so much money to be on Spotify. And when you listen to Rogan or when you listen to this Schellenberger guy, obviously not Sanjay Gupta because he is just a rock-dumb, dyed-in-the-wool communist. But the other two, they have realized that they have reached a dead end. They talk about how this progressivism has failed in so many ways. Culturally, it's failed. Pragmatically, it's failed. But what do you do? What do you do? Well, I guess you just do what the adults in the room say to do and vote for this guy. And when I talk to all your folks out in the playground, as I joked, everybody knows I like kids better than people. Fortunately, they're like me. That's why maybe I like them. But all kidding aside... You support a system that makes that guy president. And because none of this stuff affects you directly, you say, well, yeah, I know it didn't really work, but at least it's not the other guy. I'll be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. Goodbye.
Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator. You can join the discussion at t.me slash I'm reasonable. I'm also on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcouture.com. You can also go direct to that at shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. I'll see you next time out on the range. as moderator for tonight's broadcast. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble, and bit shoot. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!